Well, welcome to Kids Club. I'm tempted to say, that's all I got to say, but uh, it'd be a really short service today. I got a little bit more. You know, there are a few stories in the entire Bible that are probably uh, better known than the story of Joshua and the battle for Jericho. In fact, we know it so well, I think, that when we first hear that, we're all tempted to sing, Josh bit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. I guess what, we're going to sing that a little bit later on uh, today. But Josh bit the battle of Jericho. And the question, though, is really, uh, what's faith got to do with that? And I hope we can see that today. But after that verse, I don't know if we'll get to this verse today, but it says, you may talk about your men of Gideon, you may talk about, brag about your men of Saul. There's none like good old Joshua who won the battle of Jericho. See, this singular event stands out because the story of God's people uh, emerging victorious when they were facing an absolutely impossible situation, this mighty walled city of Jericho. And unless they found a way to bring down the walls, there was no way for them to take the city. And if they couldn't take the city, they were not going to be able to take the promised land that had been promised to them by the Lord. And at this point, we only need to know one important fact. And the important fact is this. It it was totally impossible to bring down those walls. That's an important fact. Remember, it was totally impossible to bring those walls down. Totally, absolutely, completely, utterly impossible. Jericho stood between them and what God had promised them. Now, a smart man who sings songs might say you need to know when to hold them and you need to know when to fold them. Well, God's people, though, won a great big victory that day. You've already seen that on the little video. The question is, how did it happen? Well, if we went back to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in verse 30, it says, by faith. I'm tempted to stop right there. That's how they did it, by faith. Well, the question, though, we need to ask today is by what kind of faith? And I'm going to suggest five different answers this morning. And here's answer number one. You see it up on the screen. The walls came down because of faith in spite of long odds. Now, today, if you were to go back to the promised land and you were to go visit that old city of of Jericho, you either travel down the mountains from Jerusalem downhill to Jericho Or you're going to come a little bit south from the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan River and still have to cross the river, and you're still going to need to go up a little bit. The city itself is not located very far from that river. It's an important important point uh, to remember when you read the story of Joshua's amazing conquest. The Canaanites had built this place as, I guess, what you call a gateway fortress. It was the only way to get into the Promised Land, and so... Enemy countries couldn't just come and invade it. They had to go through Jericho to get into what would be the promised land. Jericho was just too large to be ignored. So what was Jericho to the people, the children of Israel? Well, I think there were three things What it went to them. One of them was it was a city of pagan unbelief. This were, these were not God-fearing people who lived in Jericho. Second of all, it was a city of strategic importance. And third, it was a city of human impossibility. This was just way too big for them to deal with. Now, all three of those are kind of crucial. Kind of put them in the back of your mind. Pagan unbelief, strategic importance, human impossibility. 
But God knows if you're going to take his land, you need to do what? You need to confront paganism head on. That's why God plants churches in certain places, to confront whatever's going on in that particular land. See, the corrupt paganism had a big focus on idolatry, uh, immorality. Uh, They could not coexist at all with the worship of the one true God. So it had to be confronted. It had to be defeated. And so this city had spiritual importance. It also had military importance. And because the walls were so high, they seemed to reach to the sky. In fact, that's what the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 9, verse 1, talks about Jericho. Walls that reached up to the sky, it needed to be completely defeated or the Jews would never, ever be safe, either across the Jordan or in the promised land. Now, a lot of people have done a lot of digging around this place. In fact, uh, in the last 140 years or so, uh, they've done a lot of... uh, Research on the ruins of ancient Jericho, just to give you an idea. Now, we know that the city that Joshua saw actually had two walls. There was an inner wall, and then there was an outer wall, and both of these were built on a slope, which meant attacking armies had to kind of come uphill, and if you could get past the first wall, you still had to go up a little further and get inside the second wall, so it was virtually impregnable to an attacking army. As a result... Uh, well, because Jericho is also one of the oldest cities in the world, it had been defeated different times, and every time they got defeated, they just built it bigger and bigger and higher and higher. And as a result, Jericho was surrounded by a great earthen rampart. So it was a big hill where they'd gone up, and there was a stone wall at the top of this hill, and inside was a retaining wall that was about 12 to 15 feet high, And on top of that was a mud brick wall that was six foot thick. It was about 20 to 26 foot high on top of all of that. So this was not just your little gated community in Branson Hollister. As a result, they were surrounded by this big embankment. And at the crest of the embankment was a similar mud brick wall whose base was roughly 46 feet even higher than the other two things. And so this was some monstrous thing that God says you need to take this city. Now, humanly speaking, and it's humanly speaking, the people were not going to be able to do this. Now, old records say that they were probably living inside of all this, several thousand people. And um, records also say that they were well prepared to be attacked by anybody. There was actually a spring inside of Jericho, so they never ran out of water. If you go back and read Joshua chapter 3, the harvest had just been taken in. So guess what? They had all the food they needed. So in this big, impregnable, walled fortress, they've got water, they've got people, and they've got food, and they could sit up there and be great for two or three years. So what could the Jews do in face of this seeming impossibility? I mean, they had no way really to get up the ramparts. They had no way to get over any of the walls. I mean, if they, and if they can't skip Jericho, they're going to be camped out on the other side of the Jordan for the rest of their lives. So what could they possibly do? Well, here's answer number two. The walls fell because of faith that follows a very strategic plan. Now, in Joshua 6... Uh, God instructs the Jews to do a number of things that are really pretty unusual when you stop and think about it. Some of you probably remember this story from your Sunday school years or vacation Bible school. They were to march around this city 
once a day for six days. I have no idea how long it took, you know, maybe a half a million or more people to walk around the city. And then they were in march with the Ark of the Covenant. And they were supposed to put seven priests in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh day, they were to march around Jericho seven times. Don't count, because I don't know where I'm going to stop. I might finish at nine or ten. They were to march around seven times. And then these priests were to be blowing these horns, these shofars, as they marched. And on the seventh day, on the seventh trip around, the people were all supposed to shout. And when they shouted... The walls were supposed to come down, and when the walls came down, they were to enter the city and conquer it. Joshua, if you read through all of this, actually added a few more kind of details to this. He instructed the people, when you walk around, be quiet. I'm already thinking, if I'm I'm a Jerichoite, I'm sitting up there, and I see maybe a half a million people walking around, they're just like, what the heck? And then he had priests blow these shofars, these ram's horns, really loud. And for six days they do this, and at the end of one trip around, they all go back across the Jordan and just sit there. And on the seventh day, at the end of the seventh time around, the the priests blow their shofars one last time, one big loud blast, as loud, and the people would shout as loud as they could. I'm going to stop the story right there. It's, it's It's such a great story. What are the chances? I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest about this. What are the chances that this strategy could cause all of those walls and ramparts and all that stuff to utterly come tumbling down like the song says? Now, I can guarantee you that you cannot find any military experts. Now, some of you are veterans. Jeff, I know, is a veteran. You probably have never studied anything like this in making battles to do any fighting. You're not going to find military experts who say, oh yeah, Joshua, that would be the best plan. Walk around this place six times on the seventh day, walk around seven times and then shout a lot. So I came up with an equation. I'm not a mathematician, but I'm going to give you a very simple equation. You tell me the answer. Marching plus horns plus shouting equals... I just wrote question marks. Marching and shouting, horns, huh... Anybody ever been to the Great Wall of China? You ever seen pictures of it? What would bring down a wall like that? How about marching and blowing horns and shouting? Would that bring down the Great Wall of China? No. But at this point, we we confront something kind of new and vital. The walls fell down because of answer number three. And here's answer number three. Faith that God would somehow give them the victory. V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, victory, victory, that's our cry. Just like old high school football games and basketball games. And there are two hints in the story that tell us this. Hint number one, God said he was going to give them the city. Now I want to read to you Joshua chapter 6, verse 2, because this is what God said to Joshua before, before, before he ever gave him the plan. He said, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and his fighting men. Did you catch that little phrase in there in past tense? I have delivered. I have delivered. Not I will deliver. I have delivered you already. So God is already speaking about Jericho in the past tense. And that's a key point. He says, Come on, guys. 
we're going to do this because it's a done deal. Those walls are going to come down. It's just a matter of time. Now, that shouldn't surprise anybody who believes in God. It shouldn't surprise us. He can do things like that. Uh, he speaks and it's done. And in a real sense, the battle was over before it even began to get started. Now, here's the second hint in the story. And that is that God put himself in the middle of the battle plan. Now, how did he do that? It's called, remember, what? The Ark of the Covenant. And you read about that. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? Jeff talked about that uh, months ago, I think, in a, when, he, when he shared. Didn't you talk about the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. And so you kind of remember what it is. This Ark, you know, it, it, it contained the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the Mount Sinai. It had a golden pot of manna. I love that Hebrew word manna. It means, what is this? Manna. Okay, that's what it is. That's what you can eat for a while. It's also got Aaron's rod in there, which actually had budded. And uh, the lid of the ark had this mercy seat with the angel's wings covering over it, where the high priest would offer a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And this afternoon, you got nothing else to do. Go home and read Leviticus 16, and you can study all about the Day of Atonement. Now, the ark was not just some sort of fancy religious piece of furniture like a baptismal font or a pulpit or an altar or whatever like that. It represented the very presence of God himself. And so putting that ark out in front of all the people was like saying, come on, folks, I'm going to lead the parade. Follow me. Now, at this point, all military operations are off the table. It's the people plus God, or maybe I should put it the other way around. It's God plus the people. Spears and armor at this point in time make no difference whatsoever. Yet there's another aspect to consider here. What exactly were the people of Jericho doing during the time when these Jews were walking around the city once a day in total silence, except for the blowing of those darn horns? Well, Joshua chapter 6 verse 1 tells us exactly what was going on. It says, they shut the gates. Out of fear of the people. Now, this happened even before they began doing the marching. And I have a feeling that if you were inside the gates and saw this big group of people coming up, you would shut the gates and you kind of wonder what the heck is going to go on. Now, they knew the Jews could never breach those, those uh, walls on their own. But on the other hand, they were trapped inside and they couldn't get out. Uh, plus, if you go back and continue reading in Joshua chapter 2, they'd already heard about how the Jews had crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They'd already seen about how they had crossed the Jordan River already on dry land. They already heard about how they had, had uh, defeated a couple of uh, Amorite kings, uh, Sihon and Og. So they knew these people were on the march and they were up to something. Plus, they had that strange marching to contend with. Now, one imagine this is psychological warfare going on here. So all the people in Jericho didn't really know this at the time. They were already defeated before the walls ever fell. They lost the battle when? When God decided to get involved. Are you in a battle these days? Guess when you'll start winning? When God gets involved. More about that when it comes to restore a little bit later. See, these high walls are, are no match whatsoever for, for God Almighty. 
the God who created those stones could blow those stones out of the way, just a few breaths. Now, we don't know exactly how he did it. All we know is that, what, he did it. And the city was taken by Joshua and his people. So now we're coming to this fourth characteristic of faith here. The walls fell because of faith that expressed itself in persevering obedience. See, if God is the real hero of this story, and he is, then we need to face another question. The question is this, why did God have the people march around the city for six days and then march around on the seventh day seven times? Now, it's not like the marching was dislodging stones. I mean, don't just think, well, you get them trampled and we just get those rocks start shaking and it just all fall down. Now, instead, I think there's a lesson of the power of God on one hand and the need for perseverance on our part. See, God has so ordered this moral universe that you and I live in that he responds to our faith, your faith, my faith, when it's actually put to work. Faith works. Faith with boots on. See, it's not passive faith that God honors, but it is active faith. It's living faith, faith with boots on, faith that actually does something. And if you read the rest of Joshua chapter 6, you discover that God's promises do not equal inactivity. For example, in verses 67, diligent preparation. Verse 10, careful discipline. Verse 14, patient repetition. Verse 20, audacious exaltation. That's loud shouting, fancy words for that. Verse 21, complete obedience. And then verses 23 to 25, intentional compassion. Come back to that one a little bit later. I mean, think about this for a moment. God could have said, uh, why don't you guys just sit, stay in camp today? Uh, don't do anything. I'll just go over and kick the walls down. Um, you, you got any problems with that? And, uh, well, no, not really. <laughs> Well, but God says he's fully able to work without any human means. But his normal plan is to see people accomplish his mission. So even though God caused these walls to fall down, the people still had to march. They still had to shout. They still had, had to go in and fight. I mean, don't forget that. They still had to go in and do battle. And, and this is the precise point that he, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. By faith, the walls fell down. Now, how do we know it was by faith? It's because the people put their faith into practices by marching day after day after day after day. So we're going to get to the end of this message. This is really the, the fifth statement. The walls fell down because of faith that acted in spite of any doubts. Now, I don't know how you would define faith. I I looked up a whole bunch of definitions when I was putting this message together. This is one I really like. Faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. Now, you can challenge that as much as you want. That's just one of many. But faith is belief. I believe this to be true, but I'm not so sure. But I'm going to act on the belief part anyway. Now, unfortunately, some people stop their definition of faith right there is this they think of faith as belief and nothing else well I believe Uh, sad to say there are a lot of TV preachers that say all you have to do is believe and then all of a sudden it doesn't happen and they wonder what happened well did you actually act on that belief Um, but in this world it's hard to arrive sometimes at 100% certainty 
Now, you hope the doctor can help you, but maybe he won't. Uh, You hope the airplane will go up and come down safely, but maybe not. Uh, People who truly believe, though, that faith means 100% certainty are paralyzed. They're waiting for something to happen that may never happen. In truth, there's always unbelief mixed in with all of our belief. You see it best in some of the biggest decisions in life, and that's just plain, simple reality. You don't have 100% certainty, and you don't know really how to get to 100% certainty. You think so, uh, you hope so, uh, you pray so, you ask for guidance, you seek counsel, you write it all down, you wait for a sign from heaven, but it never comes. And you think it didn't take faith to march around for six days and then seven days? See, God told them the walls would fall down, but they still had to do what? The marching. They were acting on the belief part. We believe God can do it, and therefore we're going to do what God asks us to do in the interim. So the question is, what is faith? Well, in the big decisions of life, faith is not waiting for 100% certainty. Faith is always wavering somewhere between belief and unbelief, between doubt and assurance, hope and despair, and finally, hesitantly sometimes, with our heart in our hands, we say, Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I am going to act on the belief part. Now, a lot of people have told me that living by faith means staying over in the belief column until they get certainty. That's not living by faith. That's called stalling by faith. That's called parking by faith. See, living by faith means you act upon the belief part. It means taking a step of faith, no matter uh, how small, uh, no matter how daunting it is, however unsure of yourself you may be, and in that light we can understand the story even more clearly. I'm thinking about these Hebrews now, marching around the walls once a day for seven days. Now, could you imagine this scene? Can you even picture this in your mind? I mean, thousands upon thousands of Jews line up the first day to march around the city. In the front of them are the priests with the Ark of the Covenant. The march, they march around blowing their ram's horns, and inside the pagans are scared to death. And nothing happens. The next day, the Jews march around again. Nothing happens. On the third day, they march around again. And nothing happens. I kind of picture the people inside the walls kind of relaxing a little bit. You know, those Jews must be nuts. Out in the sun all day, just walking. And maybe some people are outside who are doing the walking are... I'm going to change my language. I just thought of a different word. They were complaining. <laughs> they were complaining. Hey, Joshy boy. What the heck's going on, buddy? This is a waste of time. I'm hot out here. I'm sweating. I need a drink. Why don't we just go attack these people and get it over with? On the fourth day, they're walking around again and nothing happens. And this time, the Jericho Arts are throwing garbage and trash over the walls on them, spitting on them. And doing all kinds of other weird stuff. People are shouting insults. And on the fifth day, the same thing. Sixth day, the same thing. 
And on the seventh day, on the seventh trip around the city, the horns start to blow, the people let out a big shout, and in one miraculous moment, the walls come tumbling down. That's it. That's how faith works. Now, don't you think there might have been a few doubters in the crowd? A few critics? A few gripers and complainers in the midst of God's people? Well, probably, because griping and bitching and moaning and complaining is all part of our sinful nature. I mean, these are real people walking around in the hot sun day after day after day. It is hot and nasty and who knows, buggy, who knows what it is, but they did it. They were acting on what? They were acting on the belief part. And when they took that step of faith, or probably many, 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 many steps, God honored it and the walls of Jericho fell to the ground. I don't know if any of you know who J. Hudson Taylor is. Uh, Being kind of a a missionary, I've been overseas, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 times. Uh, But Hudson Taylor is a a well-known guy. Uh, He was the guy who uh, initially helped bring uh, Jesus to China back in the day. And he saw God doing amazing things in China back in the 1800s in spite of some pretty hopeless circumstances. But reflecting on his experiences, he remarked that there are three stages in most great tasks undertaken for God. Impossible, difficult, done. There you go. Impossible, difficult, done. Now here's one thing you learn when you start to do anything for the Lord. And I'm going to talk a little bit about restore. When you start to do anything for the Lord, when when the pastor of your sending church says, do you think at age 77 you'd like to plant a mission? Uh, well, no, not really. But uh, I guess if you, if you give me three guys, I'll think about it. And there's the three right there. And guess what? When you do start to do something like this, it won't be as easy as you think. Now, some people may have thought, wow, if we send Joel and Anthony and Jeff and Barry... This would be like shooting fish in a barrel. Talk to any of those three guys and myself. It hasn't been all that easy. The fact that you're doing something to the Lord sometimes seems like you're making no difference at all. And it's not hard to see why we think that way at the beginning. After all, when we work for God, our motives are kind of lifted to a higher plane. This isn't just opening up a building and handing out cookies. You know, we, we search the scriptures. We want to know what God wants us to do. We, we seek godly counsel. We talk to people about what do you think we can do. We've met with other pastors in the community and said, what's going on in the community? Can we fit in here somehow? And we just believe that somehow God is going to be pleased with our efforts. And still, guess what? It still limps along. Sometimes it doesn't go near as fast as we'd like to see it. And what we thought would take weeks, you know, gosh, well, we have 25, 30 people here the first week. Well, it's kind of a shame. <laughs> kind of few people in, few people out. And sometimes months may turn into years. Enthusiasm may lag. Uh, we may feel stuck in the mud. The curious become skeptical and, and uh Maybe critical and maybe doubt takes dead aim at their faith. They realize this isn't going to be for them. Now, why would this be? 
Couldn't the Lord set it up in another way? Now, the answer is, sure he could. He could. And sometimes he does. But often God lets us struggle and sweat so that we learn to trust him at a deeper level than we've ever trusted him before. I can't begin to tell you. I have a feeling that all four of us guys have probably at night or sometime during the day wondered, (laughs) where is this going? Is it ever going to get any, quote, better than this? Well, the bad news is, yeah, it's possible. (laughs) It can get worse than this. It's possible. The good news is God always starts the possible with what? The impossibility. And that's the way I'll look at this place. This is really kind of an impossible situation when you think about it. But God likes to start his people in an impossible situation. When God wants to do something big, he starts with something very small. When he wants to do something miraculous, he starts out with something that's impossible. I mean, after all, he sent Jesus into this world, and he didn't send him to New York or Chicago or even to Rome. He sent him to a little bitty village called Bethlehem. That just reminds me that God loves to start small because then he can show his power in a mighty way. I have that written down on a piece of paper by my computer. He loves to start small because then he can show his power. H-I-S, capital letters, underline, underline, his power in a mighty way. He's also the one then who gets all the credit when we release it into his hands. We'd rather start big and go from there. That's the way most of us like to do. Man, wouldn't it have been great the first time we had 150 people show up and we didn't have enough chairs. Oh, man, we're off to the races. Well, not so with the Heavenly Father all the time. He starts with the impossible and he turns it into reality. That brings me to my final point. The real battle of Jericho was not with the Canaanites. I think the real battle is in the hearts of the people of God. I mean, would, would they believe what God had told them to do? Would they risk public humiliation by walking around this place every day and the walls didn't come down? Would they, would they do what seemed crazy in order to see God do the impossible? Now, I'm reminded today, and I don't want to get political here, but I am reminded that we live in difficult times. I mean, 2022 is not an easy year to live in, nor was 2021, nor was 2020, and probably a few years before that. I mean, news reports these days say that fear is driving voters. People are voting certain ways because they are afraid. And I'm sure that's true because this world today is very, very shaky around us. It's not just in the Ukraine. It's in China, it's in Saudi Arabia, it's in other places. It's shakiness out there. And beyond all of that noise and all of that clamor and all of that war attends every upcoming election that we'll ever hold. It will do battle against one-third of our political framework, the Supreme Court. And beyond all of the economic or the gas crisis, we remain, as Scripture says, Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. 
what are we to do in the midst of what seems like an impossible situation these days? Well, I went back to my Bible and it says, by faith. That's how we do it. We do it by faith. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell to the ground. But how will we face and conquer our own walls of impossibility from this day forward? Where do we find the faith to do what God has called us to do? Well, if you read Hebrews 12 and you get to verse 2, you find the answer. I'm not sure I put this one on the screen or not. I did. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is where we turn. He's the author and finisher of our faith. I think that's another translation. In other words, he starts and he finishes it. He's the captain. We just keep our eyes on the captain. I don't know how many of you know the Old Testament name for Jesus. Anybody know the Old Testament name for Jesus? Yeshua, which is translated in the Old Testament as Joshua. Joshua. That's kind of cool. Joshua. In Greek, that name is shortened to Yeshua, to Jesus, or sometimes Savior. See, the Old Testament Joshua, who fit the Battle of Jericho, the Old Testament Joshua points to the New Testament Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ who leads his people to victory. That's, you know, here we are, you know, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before and we just march behind our captain who's, who's responsible for all of the marching orders. So all I'm saying today, friends, when I boil this message down, this will be a long message, just to say, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Yeshua. Yeshua. Find him wherever he's leading. I mean, wherever Jesus goes, that's where I want to follow. I mean, don't, don't, don't say, wonder what direction Barry's going next week. And let's follow him. No, you follow Jesus. And hopefully, when you follow Jesus, you'll find me in line right behind you, along with Jeff and Joel and Anthony and everybody else who is here today. Why? Well, because when you keep your eyes on Jesus, the walls need to come tumbling down. That's why. I think we ought to sing that song. 